Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Education. I'm Steve Hargadon, and it's Wednesday, May 6, 2009. My guest tonight is Don Tapscott, the author of Grown Up Digital and the Dragon Ball and Next Gen Ed Project. Are you there? I can hear you. Yes, I'm sorry. You just cut out there for a second. Hello. A special thanks to KnowledgeWorks Foundation, who are the sponsor of this interview series and the creators of the 2020 forecast, and to Illuminate for providing this environment. If you're new to Illuminate, I want to give you a brief tour um, If you think that you might later in the show, up to Tools Audio Setup Wizard, and that will set up your uh, microphone to make sure it works. When you are ready, ask the question and icon with the green up arrow. That's at the bottom of the participant window because I'm really cutting in and out. So I'm actually going to switch one second. Okay, can you give me a smiley face if I sound any better? Very nice. Okay, so uh, in addition to being able to give smiley faces and to raise your hand, you can leave chats in the chat window. Uh, you're able to send messages to other individuals in the chat that don't have to go to the whole group, but do be aware that Don and I can both see those even though they appear to be private. Um, if you would need to join the audio conference, the telephone bridge, you can actually do that by unclicking your audio and then looking for the little telephone icon down at the bottom. So this is your chance to give us some uh, understanding as to where you're from. You'll see a world map on the right side of your screen. Look for the little wand with the red dot at the end, and you can place that on the map where you are. You click on that once, and then you click once on the map. So nice distribution, Don. I'm assuming that's you. Are you? Oh no, you're in Arizona right now, but you do have a, yes, a fellow Canadian. Okay, uh, Don Tapscott is the author or co-author of 12 or 13 widely read books, including Wikinomics, which was the best-selling management book in the United States in 2007. His latest book, Grown Up Digital, was the focus point of this year's flat classroom project entitled the NetGen Education Project. Don, I think I heard you once say that some of your early books were ahead of their time. Has Grown Up Digital gotten the response that you had hoped for? Well, it's, um, I don't know if ahead of their time is right. I did write a book in 1981 about the internet. I think my mother bought most of those, actually. Um, and it was a study in bad timing. <clears throat> Apologize, I'm finding a cold here, too. My wife says it's a man cold, which is much worse than regular colds because men suffer more. Anyway, um, growing up digital, that was 12 years ago, and it was a big, uh, it was a major book. It was the number one nonfiction book on Amazon for a while because no one had ever really talked about this intersection of technology and um, 
and demographics. And the sequel, Grown Up Digital, which is out now, is doing well. Um, it's nowhere near uh, where I hope it will be, though. So I'm working hard to uh, try and get lots of attention to the book and to generate discussion about it. Because I think the stakes are very high in getting these issues right. I noticed that a lot of your books have been collaborations. Would you say that you're a natural collaborator, and do you think that's helped you to understand this generation? Uh, I don't know if I'm a natural collaborator. It's sort of necessity is the mother of invention for me. Um, and that it's through collaboration you get better results. But I started uh, studying this generation about 15 years ago when I noticed how my own children were effortlessly able to use all the sophisticated technology. And at first I thought they were prodigies. But then I noticed that uh, all their friends were like that. And um, so that was a bad theory. So I started, um, uh, I worked with 300 kids actually. And uh, we interviewed them and spent a lot of time with them. And, and I wrote uh, Growing Up Digital. For the new book, it was a much deeper collaboration though. Uh, overall, we interacted somehow with 11,000 uh, young people in the generation. And uh, we also uh, had a, a team of about 20 people that were doing the, the work. This was a syndicated research project that was funded by large companies that were trying to figure out what's going on with this generation. So it was a very intense uh, collaborative effort for sure. Don, I interviewed Anastasia Goodstein once, and I think you know her because she's mentioned in the book. And her yeah. main message to parents was, don't panic. It seems like your substantial research comes to a similar conclusion and maybe even goes a little bit further. Um, you say, this is not the dumbest generation, but it's the smartest generation, and we can be very hopeful. Is that accurate? Uh, yes, it is. And um, Anastasia, by the way, I'm, I'm the opening keynote at her conference. It's coming up in San Francisco. I think it's called Why Pulse. And it's like an interesting conference for people who are interested in this generation. But um, it's something that I found way back when I was working on growing up digital. Now with the new book, it uh, struck me just as hard that um, there's a lot of cynicism about this generation. They're portrayed as, you know, well, in the case of Mark Airlines' book, The Dumbest Generation, the subtitle is How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future. Don't trust anyone under 30, he says. Um, they're, uh, it's a generation that, that is net addictive and glued to the screen and losing their social skills. Uh, Thomas Bly in the uh, Sibling Society says the Internet is eating the neocortex of youth today. They're a generation that is supposed to not give a damn. A book by Gene Twenge called Generation Me says we've created a little army of narcissists. A generation that steals intellectual property and, um, and, and that's violent and are bullies and, and they're coddled and they mooch off their parents and, and on and on it goes. And uh, I mean, I did the largest research project ever on this generation and for that matter, uh, on any generation, and my data suggested um, that this was not true. That overall, it's complicated, but overall we can be enormously optimistic. 
that this is a generation, the young people that have had access and, and a good upbringing are, are the smartest, they're the best collaborators, they're graduating from high school and university um, like never before. Um, coming into the workforce, they have better tools for collaboration and, and uh, at their fingertips and exist in, in some of our, our most sophisticated corporations. And um, that if you go through that long liturgy of, uh, of cynical comments about the generation, that basically they're not true. Don, you talk about there being eight norms or characteristics that actually do define this generation. Do you want to expand on them at all? Sure. Um, by the way, these norms exist across 10 countries, from Japan right through to the US of A. And um, in uh, Europe and uh, Latin America um, and in uh, Asia. And so we can speak of this being the first ever global generation. And their norms tend to differentiate them from other generations. Just uh, quickly, off the top of my head here, uh, they want choice. Um, and in fact, it's broader than that. It's freedom, the freedom of mobility, um, freedom of, of uh, sources of knowledge and information. I mean, when I was a kid, there were three TV stations. Now there are millions. Um, it's a generation that, the, uh, that's a Twitter bleep. Is anyone else hearing that? I'll turn off Twitter here um, if it's annoying. Is it OK? No one heard that sound? All right, fine. Um, it's a generation that likes to customize things. I never got to customize the Mickey Mouse Club when I was a kid, but these uh, these kids can can change everything: their website, their handle. A generation that um, that cares a lot. I mean, it's just not true that they don't give a damn. They have a strong sense of integrity. Actually, the youth volunteering in high school and universities is at an all-time high. Um, it's a, uh, a generation of scrutinizers. When I was a kid, I saw a picture. It was a picture. Today, young people you know, look at a picture. They need to authenticate it and scrutinize it. And I think they've got, you know, what is it, an animation, a bot? Um, I'm 12-year-old Moose Lips talking to 13-year-old Cyber Chick. Is it really Cyber Chick or is it Cyber Chick's younger brother who's uh, trying to have some, some fun? Cyberchick's dad is trying to go find out what's going on with the teenagers. So they have good BS detectors. One of the reasons is there's so much BS on the internet, basically. That's a generation of uh, five of uh, collaborators. Uh, my daughter's got, what, seven, eight hundred friends on Facebook. With their friends, there's 20,000. And Jared, who's a relationship marketer at yub.com, he's like, I don't know, 21 years old. He's got 10 million. Um, he gets to 10 million people. When I was si uh, 20 years old, I got to six people. Uh, it's a generation that wants to have fun. This is quite extraordinary. Now, of course, we all want to have fun, but they really want to have fun. Over 60% of them in the US say that having fun with a product or service is as important as what the product or service does. And in the workplace, having fun is more important than how much money you make in your first job out of university when you're trying to figure out where you're going to work. That's a generation of innovators. When I was a kid, the pace of innovation was glacial. 
And hey, everybody, check out this avocado colored fridge with an ice cube maker. Wow, cool. But now, you know, they want the new, never handheld device because the old one uh, that they got six months ago, it's not because it isn't cool anymore, it's because the old one does, doesn't do all the stuff the new one does. And finally, um, it's a generation that wants uh, things to happen fast. I call this norm speed. Now again, the cynics have a pejorative um, spin on this. They say, well, it's a generation that needs immediate gratification. But again, uh, this is glass half full, glass half empty. It depends on your perspective. My daughter, until recently, was a consultant for Accenture. It's her first job out of uh, university. And uh, she was flying to Minneapolis every week. She could check into the Marriott Hotel there in 30 seconds. And she's wondering, why does it take 30 seconds for me to do something equally complicated from my government? So are they a generation that wants immediate gratification, or are they a generation that has realistic and legitimate expectations that things ought to move more quickly than they move now, that we shouldn't have a bureaucracy in traditional models? So these eight norms are I'm glad you, you picked up on them, uh, Steve, because they're at the heart of how we can learn from this generation to change our institutions. You know, as they come into the workforce, this is we need to design our organizations and our work systems around these norms. As they come into the marketplace, they're changing the way we think about the brand and about building relationships. As they become citizens, there's huge implications for government, and more broadly, I think, even for for democracy. And uh, you know, overall, I, I don't think there's a more important force for change in this uh, generation. Exhibit A: They just elected their first president of the United States. So, Don, this is a pretty big change, historic, and maybe one of the most historic changes in the history of mankind. And you call it going from a culture of control to a culture of enablement. Does the fact that this is such a big change help to explain why it's so hard for many people to see this as a positive? I'm sorry, I just missed you there. The fact that this is such a big change. Does it make it hard for some people to see this as a positive because it is hard to change? Well, I think that's part of it. Um, but there's something bigger that's, that's happening. And um, we've always been cynical about young people throughout history. In the book, I quote Aristotle, who his criticism of youth today uh, back then was pretty similar. You know, the young people are arrogant, and they're lazy, and they don't like learning, and uh, they care about trivial things, and they have bad manners, and they don't listen to their parents. And so that's always been a problem. But there's something very different that's happening now. See, this is for the first time in history that children are an authority on something really important in society. I was an authority on model trains when I was a kid. And today, um, you know, the 11-year-old at the breakfast table is an authority on this digital revolution that's changing business, commerce, government, learning, publishing, every institution in society. So I call this a generational lap. Kids are lapping their parents on the info track. And this is 
a formula for fear. I mean, the kids know more about this huge innovation in the home than the parents often. The kids know more about the most important innovation in learning ever, maybe with the exception of the printing press, but I think not, probably ever, than their teachers. The kids coming into um, the workforce and employment know more about how to build high-performance enterprises and the tools to do that than their employers. And we fear what we don't understand. And, and uh, I think that's where all this cynicism comes from. You know, these, uh, these guys like Mark Bearline, English professor, this, the dumbest generation guy, this has got nothing to do with our kids dumb today in universities. These are profs who have fear. Um, that there's a challenge to the model of pedagogy, that kids are not interested in coming to lectures because they know that there's a better way to spend their time in learning. And it's not about fear; it's about it's about power. And it's I sorry, it is about fear, but it's not about are they dumb or not. It, this is, it has to do with power. Who's going to have power in the dissemination of information and knowledge? in our society. So, I mean, you were, you were getting into it there. We're messing with some pretty fundamental stuff here. So, Don, I definitely got that message from your book and, and from hearing you speak, uh, uh, who gets to control information in our society. I also wondered if on a more benign level there wasn't also some jealousy involved. Um, Marco Torres says, are we concerning learning because when we were in schools we didn't have the opportunities to create in the same way? Do you think that might be a part of it as well? Okay, I hope not. <laughs> but it might be true. I mean, I'm jealous, but it doesn't cause me to be cynical about a generation. You know, I actually did take a graduate course. So I was doing my master's in education. I took a graduate course in statistics. Um, and it was all online. This was in 1976, if you can believe it. It was a PDP-11 um, uh, computer by digital connected, connected to a VT-100 terminal and a slide projector inside a little box. And um, the, the prof was there to structure a learning experience for me. There were no lectures, but Let's face it, the statistics lecture, by definition, is a bust. <laughs> you know, there's no one size fits all for statistics. Everyone in the room is either bored or they don't get it. But um, I got an A, but most kids did, up from a B minus. It's just a better way of learning. And that was actually a huge, <laughs> had a huge effect on me. That I thought, wow, we can really transform the model of pedagogy if we do this right. Now, that was 30 years ago. And we still haven't come very far. So there's a lot of resistance to change. The, the biggest force now, this is actually going to happen, the biggest force to change the schools and the, and the universities and the model of pedagogy is the students. So uh, there, one of the things, that, well, some of the things that I hear kind of frequently are that in, in this mix of how students are responding to formal education today, they're not learning rigor and self-discipline. Are there some lessons that we that that we still need to be sure 
do get taught, or how do you respond to that argument? Well, I've heard it a lot. Um, there's sort of two different uh, questions. One is self-discipline, and um, which has to do with um, working hard, focusing, concentrating. They have the attention of a, a gnat, that kind of criticism. And then there's the criticism that um, that I'm sorry. What was the other point you you, you said that they're not right? Self-discipline and rigor. Yeah, rigor. Okay. Um, and then rigor has to do with working hard. I think that you're prepared to put in the, the tough time. Well, you know, all we have is measures of output. Really, more kids are graduating from university than ever before. SAT scores are higher, even though the number of students that have taken the SAT has exploded. Um, 20 years ago, when these kids were just little tiny kids that were not born yet, um, the SAT was only taken by the smartest kids in the best schools. Now, it's a mass phenomenon. SAT scores should have crashed because of that, but they haven't. In fact, they've gone up in math, and they've uh, since over the last 20 years, they've gone up in, in uh, English and reading as well. So um, the output evidence that we have would suggest that that's just not true. I mean, to get A's and, and good marks in university, you need to have, you need to focus. And I mean, has anybody seen a kid sitting in front of a video game playing World of Warcraft for two hours with laser-like focus? You know, it's not a question of an, an ability to focus. It's a question of of being bored, to me. You know, that we have a traditional model of pedagogy based on the lecture, which for these kids is, uh, you know, basically the transmission of the notes of a teacher to the notes of a student without going through the brains of either, pretty much. And as for rigor, I mean, kids are prepared to work hard. Now, that's a broad generality. And in the schools, there is a bifurcation. I mean, the top third are spectacular. They're smarter than any previous generation. By far, they have better tools. They're graduating more. They got better marks. They come into the workforce. <laughs> I was talking to the CEO of uh, his name's Jim Quigley, CEO of Deloitte, and I said to him, "Are they the dumbest generation?" He says, "No, they're, they're the smartest." I said, "Give me some data." He said, "Easy. They bill more. They're, they have happier clients, and they they bill more. Um, you know, they generate more revenue." for our company. He says, case closed. So um, on the other hand, the middle third of the generation are doing pretty well from everything we can see. They're doing better than previous generations. The bottom third are dropping out of school, and that's a big problem. Um, why is that? Is it because the digital revolution stupefies young Americans? Well. How about the fact that you got class sizes of 40, teachers last less than six years in a job because it's so awful, they're underpaid. We're teaching with an old model of pedagogy. The bottom, that the kids don't relate to, the bottom third are coming from broken families um, where the single mom's got two jobs and hardly has time to see the kids, let alone work with them on their, their homework. 
Um, and there's a direct correlation with all kinds of things. I mean, I point this out in Ground Up Digital. If, if you're an inner city kid, you're going to have a higher dropout rate. If you're a, a Native American, you're going to have a higher dropout rate. There are real reasons and real problems that we have. And to blame the internet, I mean, this is not very helpful. This is sort of like blaming the library for ignorance. Which is why when I'm debating these people, I, you know, I basically sometimes get a little bit hard because I don't think that that this is helpful. It's like throwing mud on the windshield, preventing us from seeing the real problems that that uh, that exist today in our schools and in our educational institutions. Don, I have to laugh when I think about my own childhood because I think of the many hours I spent watching Gilligan's Island. That, that you know easily are surpassed by any activity on the internet. Well, and, and you raise a very good point because you know time online for young people today is not taken away from hanging out with your friends, learning the piano, talking to your parents, or doing your homework. Time online is taken away from television. It's taken away from Gilligan's Island, and in my case, the Mickey Mouse Club. And um, these kids watch less TV, and they watch it differently. They have their programs, you know, maybe a couple of programs that they'll watch. But when they come home, they turn on their computer, and they're in three different windows talking to their friends on a phone or texting, and they get three magazines open and, and uh, a video game going, and they may be doing their homework at the same time. The television's in the background. It's kind of like passive media. In the book, I said, the TV is, is like Muzak. And, and this is a really important point, because this affects the building of your brain. See, after your, your, your basic DNA, the, the number one determinant of what your brain is like is how you spend your time. And there are two critical periods of brain development, zero to two, or three, early childhood that doesn't get affected by all this, hopefully. I mean, one-year-old shouldn't be on the web. They should be, you know, being hugged and catching a ball and, and uh, you know, talking to their parents. But between the ages of 8 and 18 is the second critical period. It's extended adolescence. And if you spend your time 24 hours a week watching TV, you get a certain kind of brain. This affects your synaptic connections and the actual structure of your brain. If you spend a roughly equivalent amount of time being the active handler, manipulator of information, a collaborator, communicator, rememberer, that affects your brain as well. And overall, assuming that it's done in a positive context where there's balance, this is good. Now, you need balance if you're spending 50 hours a week playing video games as a as a 15-year-old, you don't have balance. That's a problem. But assuming that you have balance, this is something that everything that I can see from the brain science and the research that's been done is something that's positive. So, but again, we, we fear what we don't understand. So, Don, I want to switch us a little bit toward our education system. You said uh, at a in a speech I heard you give at COSIN this year, that there's no more important challenge in America than reinventing education and learning. 
and that you're trying to create a discussion on changing the pedagogy in the system. So you've been working on some projects for education. Do you want to talk about them? Well, uh, sure. Um, actually, let me just tell you about one that I'm writing about right now, and you'll be able to read about this soon. I was in Portugal recently, and um, the famous uh, Portuguese explorer, one of them, they had several, uh, was Magellan, and or Magellanish in Portuguese. And they have a program uh, now called the Magellanish Program in the schools. It's part of an e-school initiative where every kid in school in Portugal is getting a, a laptop connected. They've already given out close to a million. Connected to a high-speed um, wireless network in the school and tied in with a program to transform the model of learning and pedagogy. And, you know, Steve, you've heard me speak and read my book. You know that model. But just uh, quickly, the model we have today is a is broadcast learning in most of our institutions. It's one way. It's teacher-focused. It's one size fits all. And the student is isolated in the learning process. Well, in Portugal, they're moving to a multi-way, student-focused, highly customized collaborative model where um, the relationship between and, and where the, the students collaborate in the learning process and the relationship between students and, and teachers is very different. So these little laptops, they actually gave me one. It's so adorable. This is the one uh, from uh, grade one to grade uh, five, or grade four, I guess. And it's a, uh, a fairly small thing. It has a little handle. You carry it around. It's got a little leather. It's a little leather thing on the outside. And um, but it's it's a hot little machine. It's fast. It's got a lot of memory. And then once you get into grade five, you get a full laptop. Now it depends on uh, your income, how much these cost. So for the Megalenish, it's uh, fifty dollars. The parents have to pay. But if you're poor, it's 25, and if you're really poor, it's free. And the uh, the big laptop, if you if you're a well-to-do family, you pay 150, and that goes down to zero as well. So I'm sitting there in a class, and then the teacher gets up, and all these kids are buzzing, and it's so noisy. And uh, the teacher says to the to the kids, "Okay, go to the astronomy blog." These are six-year-olds. They might have been seven. Go to the astronomy bus. All these kids pull up this amazing, beautiful bitmap picture of the solar system, real-time animation. And she says, today we're going to learn about something called the equinox. Who knows what an equinox is? And of course, nobody knows what an equinox is. So um, she says, OK, well, find out what an equinox is. And you can do it by yourself, or you can talk to other kids. So I see this one kid, he's looking in the blog for equinox, he can't find it. He goes over to Portuguese Wikipedia. Another kid is Googling <laughs> equinox. And then suddenly a little group over in the corner, they got together. They found out what an equinox is. They put up their hands. They're so excited. They explained to the class what an equinox is. And this is a fundamental change in the learning paradigm. The kids are turned on to learning. It's highly customized. Um, 
it's a student-focused model, and it, it moves away from instruction to discovery. You know, Seymour Papert, the great educator, said the great tragedy, and I, I paraphrase, I don't know the exact quote, but the, the great tragedy of every lesson taught is it denies the student the opportunity of discovery. And these kids are discovering the solar system. And they're, they're discovering and getting turned on into astronomy. So um, that's, that's just one example. And, and it, it just strikes me, you know, in the United States, well, we can't afford technology in the classroom. Portugal can. They built the partnerships to make this happen. Uh, Portugal Telecom is a big partner. Intel, Microsoft are involved. Of course, they all have an interest in these kids getting access to technology. <laughs> the Portugal Telecom, the kids go home and they ask their mom or dad, hey, can we get a high-speed network here in the house? Or, or, you know, everyone has an interest in the new generation being educated and um, and loving to learn and being able to learn lifelong. So, Don, I remember when at uh, work we went from signing up for time to go use the word processor in a separate room to actually having a computer at each desk, and there was sort of a dramatic change. Part of what I hear you saying is that hasn't taken place yet in education, and that part of the difficulty is that we're deploying the computers in an old-fashioned way. That's actually a quote from you. So do you see the computer really making a difference when widely deployed that way? Well, if you just put technology into a classroom to, to reinforce the old par paradigm of learning, you're going to get suboptimized results, obviously. And um, this is not fundamentally about technology to me. It's a change in the relationship between students and, and teachers in the learning pro process. And this is the real tough part. Sadly, we haven't even got to this. Most of our schools, kids don't have laptops. They don't have access to the technology. And that, honestly, is, and as you well know, is just the beginning. How do you integrate this into the, the curriculum? How do you, you know, create up an, how do you create an environment whereby kids can learn mathematics? Now, the tools exist to do that, but this is a big change for the teachers. And don't get me wrong here. Um, I'm a teacher. I'm a professor. Uh, both of my parents were high school teachers. These are hardworking people. And um, they're often up against really difficult odds. But sadly, one of the biggest impediments now to all of this happening is the teachers who are sort of locked into this old model of learning. So I've wondered out loud several times if we talk about this uh, being moving into a future of high participation, is there a degree to which this also reflects a return to participation? I think of what schooling was like before sort of the factory model. Uh, and we, we talk about now moving to a, a studio learning or craftsman shop. Um, is there a degree to which you're right, this isn't about the technology, it's just about recognizing or re-recognizing the true purpose of education? Well, it's a good point that if you have a small class size, you actually don't need the technology. It's not fundamental because you can have a student-focused interactive 
interactive, collaborative, highly customized model of learning. But when there are 30 kids, uh, it's just not possible. So in some ways, we are moving back to a, a more customized model. And I think you use the term mass production or something like that. I mean, it's a good term. We have an industrial age model of education where we're pumping out this stuff, we're pumping out young people. And there's, it, it, this is not just about the model of pedagogy. I, I think that, that there are some bigger issues here as well. One of them is sort of what is the purpose of education? You know, I just uh, read an article that had some thoughtful stuff in it. It's a uh, huge article in Time Magazine last week about how to fix America's school. And the big, the big uh, conclusion they come to is we need better standardized testing. Well, that was a big conclusion. Well, I actually have a background in educational psychologist. I was a tester, and there's a role for tests. But is that what we need? Kids who can perform well on tests? You know, when I was a kid, you graduated, you were set for life. You chose a profession. And you kept up in that profession. Today, when you graduate, you're not set for life. You're set for about 15 minutes. If you took a technical course, half of what you learn in the first year is obsolete by the time you get to the, to the fourth year. So we need more than students who know stuff. And besides, you can't know everything in a given field now anyway. It's not about. It's not just about what you know. It's about your capacity to learn. Lifelong, to reinvent your knowledge base, to research, to find information and synthesize it, and, and, to, and to have higher level cognitive functions, to be able to, to uh, organize that information and, and, uh, and, and to have not just information, but to acquire knowledge. And, and maybe you know, maybe even uh, wisdom, to to be able to collaborate and to communicate uh, with people, to understand the context within which you get information, or or the context to describe how, how things are happening. So of course, some of that means knowing things. I'm not suggesting that that uh, students, for example, shouldn't have to memorize certain things. But you know what's really important about the Battle of Hastings is not that it happened in, I'm not even sure I get it right, 1066, was that it? What's really important is that I have a, uh, an understanding of what that thing roughly was and, that, and um, when it occurred and, and you know, who, was, who were the protagonists and, and that I have a facility to go onto the web and to find out should I need to know more. About, about that particular battle. And I, I don't want to, uh, you know, overly stereotype our, our current system because there's lots of good stuff in there. But I got into a big debate. It was on the BBC, actually, in the, uh, because someone had published an article quoting me saying, students don't need to know facts. They just need to know how to think. And of course, I would never say that because you do need to know facts. Anyway, that's what the article said. So um, we got into this big debate, and the people on the other uh, uh, on the other point of view were basically saying, "Look, at, kids need to have facts. 
stuffed down their throats, and be able to regurgitate them full stop. And they actually, uh, the moderator of the program gave this great quote from Charles Dickens, someone there who, uh, uh, I'm not a net gener, I can't multitask, so I can't Google it and um, share it with everybody here, but where Charles Dickens went on and on about the facts. Education has one reason, facts. You must know facts. It's got nothing to do with being a good person or thinking or anything like that. It's all about the facts. And this view is not that far off, weirdly, from the view that some educators uh, and for sure some parents hold. And I think part of it, it's not a jealousy thing uh, only, as you were alluding to. I think it's also like, this is a way of controlling kids. You force them to sit there and swallow all this stuff, and they need to um, bring it bring it back to us. I guess we have discipline in the schools, and I guess that's what we need in this age where young people are are undisciplined. Well, there's a lot there's a lot more complicated. Uh, uh, there are a lot more complicated reasons why um, you know people today might have. Um, a negative attitude towards uh, the schools. So, Don, your description of the purpose of education really reminds me of what I thought the definition of a liberal education was when I majored in history in college. Is the difference now that the, the new technologies have created an environment where it really is critical to have that the, the the purposes of that liberal education? Is it fair to equate that liberal education definition with what you're saying? Well, it doesn't mean that everyone needs to have a liberal arts undergraduate degree. But um, the, the opposite view we get today from so many people is that liberal arts is useless. See, we need to train people and have good skills for the... for um, you know, for an economy that requires skilled employees. And I think that's a big mistake, that a liberal arts undergraduate degree may actually be a great way to equip yourself for lifelong learning and for effective performance in a knowledge economy. You know, I have friends who are CEOs of huge, complicated companies in all kinds of industry sectors who have a undergraduate degree in ancient history or in English or something. My undergraduate degree is psychology and sociology. And um, again, but we do a disservice. So a young person says, I'm interested in business. We say, good, go take a finance degree. Well, you know, if you really want to be an effective business person, of course, you know, th these are generalities. And there are always differences. but if everyone should think hard about what I'm saying. If you want to be an effective business person, maybe, by all means, do an MBA. But undergraduate, study something you love, that you have a passion for. And if it's history, that's great. Because whatever you learn is going to help you develop the core capabilities you need for lifelong learning, problem solving, reasoning, collaboration. In, in a networked knowledge economy. You know, Harvard, if you want to do an MBA at Harvard, if you have an undergraduate finance degree, they're, they're not even going to look at you, or you're going to be a real long shot to get in there. They don't want kids who, you know, who at 
the age of 19 are studying accounting. They want kids who who have a passion for something and who are smart and who have the kind of characteristics that I've been talking about. Don, in the book you give seven guidelines for educators. I, I don't expect you to go into detail here, but uh, I do know we have an educator audience. Would you be willing to share those quickly? Um, well, you're challenging me because I don't have a copy. But um, <laughs> Would you like me to prompt you? <laughs> no. Let's see, let's see how I do, okay? Um, number one, actually we've covered a lot of this. Don't just throw technology into the classroom. Um, you know, this is not about technology. It's about the model pedagogy and the relationship between students and, and teachers. Uh, cut back on lecturing. You know, the, uh, the lecture, there's a role for the lecturer if you are a good lecturer. Um, but, I mean, and, and I understand the irony of me being down on lectures because I give probably 100 lectures a year. But um, my goal is not that people will remember the eight norms of the new generation or the seven themes of the, of the transformation of education or something like that, because they won't. Lecture is a bad way of learning. My goal is just to maybe shake them up or get them to think differently or to want to pursue something. Um, so it's, it's, these are the kinds of things that, that, um, the, that we've been talking about. You know, reinvent yourself as a teacher. What an amazing time uh, to be a teacher. The, I can't, there's never been a more exciting time, I don't think. I'll just uh, I'll tell you a quick story on that. Uh, this is probably a few years after Growing Up Digital had come out. And um, well before I wrote Grown Up Digital. And I was at a cocktail party, and a, a woman um, came up to me. And uh, she's an older woman in her 60s early 60s probably, and she said to me, um, I just wanted to meet you because you changed my life. And I said, uh, hello, what do you mean? And she says, well, I read your book, and I heard you give a lecture, and I decided I'm going to do this. I teach um, mathematics, grade 9 and 10, in an uh, independent school uh, for girls. And um, it's actually in Toronto. It's called Branksome College. And the story is, is uh, in Grown Up Digital. And uh, I decided that every kid's going to get a computer. And I'm going to get courseware that, that enables me to do the math curriculum differently. And um, I stopped lecturing. And I know more about every one of those kids after a month than I knew about any of them after a year. The kids are doing better in math. They love math. And I'm a new woman. That's what she said to me. I'm a new woman. She says, I can hardly wait to get up in the morning. She just retired this year, actually, um, because I was uh, talking to her to get the story right for the book. And um, wow, you, you have a, a, a wonderful opportunity here to, to transform yourself. Okay, this is a chance for you to ask some questions. Uh, while you're doing so, I'm going to put up the survey. Don, you have moderator privileges, so if you close that survey window, it will close for everyone, so I'm going to ask you to leave it up. Um, the first question, Don, 
was how do we get this great information to the new education secretary? Uh, you can help me. Uh, send an email, Twitter, whatever. I haven't um, met with the secretary yet, but I'm hoping to do this. Um, Steve, you mentioned uh, COSIN, the Coalition on School Networking. I think I got that right. They are um, carrying a campaign, a letter writing campaign, around uh, getting technology into the schools and changing the model of pedagogy. Uh, the last time I checked, there were 30 or 40,000 letters that have gone in. So that's something that people can do. Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, DCAP Scott. Um, and thronofdigital.com uh, is a great place, actually, for educators. Uh, we just completed something called the Net Generation Educational Challenge, where uh, I asked um, students and teachers from all around the world to submit videos, uh, short two-minute videos, on how you would uh, change the education system for relevance and effectiveness for a new century. And I got some great stuff. We just had a virtual award ceremony. It was uh, it was quite moving. A few technical complications in the ceremony. It was great, and people from countries all around the world participated. And I gave away a couple of scholarships. But um, um, I, but pro bono, no fee. I'll pay my own costs. Um, I will happily sit down with the uh, the Secretary of Education, and I am working with a number of other people in the Obama administration. I hope that this will occur. Don, I've put a couple of those links up as you've spoken. Um, the next question comes from Ann, Andrew Peterson. What role do you see games, edutainment, taking in future classrooms? Huge. Um, again, a story from the book, um, World of Warcraft, right? That allegedly melts the neocortex of youth today. I interviewed this youngster who was uh, uh, graduated from business school. And um, he said, honestly, I think I've learned more about business playing World of Warcraft than I have at school. And uh, so what do you mean? He says, well, and he goes through and he describes all the different functions of the business and how they apply to World of Warcraft. Strategy is central to everything. But you can't just be a strategist. You need to execute. And execution is all about management at the highest level and project management. He considers he considers things, these things a project. Um, we talked about talent, and uh, you know, I asked him, "You ever had to fire somebody?" He said, "Yeah, but normally it's a culture problem. It's not a skills or talent issue. You know, if you have someone who is prepared to work hard, then you can reassign them and." and develop them and develop a sort of uh, a, a learning program for them. And uh, so and this is this is not an educational game per se. This is just basic raw world of Warcraft. Imagine building gaming where we're teaching kids about, say, the solar system. You know, that'd be a next step for that Megalanish program in Portugal. Or we're teaching them about about the city, or about history, the Battle of Hastings. I mentioned that. Why not have a, you know, a, a military game where it all goes down in the class, and the classes on different sides. 
Um, the sky's the limit, and this is one of the most untouched areas um, in, in pedagogy today. Don, Ravi asks, what do you think of a university model where we have online lectures instead of 200-person classrooms? And I guess I'd like to tack on to that. Where do you see us in 10 years? Well, uh, online lectures obviously make a lot of sense. Um, I'd prefer that we have lectures not necessarily coming from the prof, whereas in the case of the 200-room uh, lecture theater, a teaching assistant giving the lecture. I mean, if you're doing a lecture about organizational development, why not have Peter Drucker do it? <laughs> but the lecture, remember, is by moving it online, you improve it in the sense that um, you make it uh, something that can happen at any place and any time. So you make it a lot more convenient. And honestly, you um, you deliver it in a, in a vehicle whereby students can speed up. There aren't opportunities to ask questions. Um, although in a lot of lectures, there's not a lot of uh, uh, question-asking behavior, which is two or three hundred kids in the room, and there are four questions that get filled, and that's not very helpful. But but changing the distribution channel for the lecture is just the tip of the iceberg. Because it's still a lecture, and it's not the best way of learning. It's a good way for doing certain. It's a it's a good device for doing certain things, for motivating, for inspiring, for maybe changing um, an attitude on something. But it's not a good way to to learn in an in-depth way. It makes a lot more sense to move towards these interactive, uh, highly customized learning models that um, are online, and that combine combining that with small group discussion. And small group discussion can be fine with a, a teaching assistant, but let's get our, our resources out of the lecture theater and into the more customized models. Where will be in uh, where will we be in ten years? Now that Obama has uh, been elected. I have a much more hopeful view of that, uh, that there's somebody home who gets it in, uh, in D.C. Um, but I mean, I don't, I don't mean to avoid the question, but the, I'm of the school that the future is something to be achieved, not something to be predicted. And I honestly don't know. I'm more hopeful than I've ever been, because we have this big generation now. They're in the high schools. They're in the universities. They're now becoming teachers, and um, they're they're. I don't think they're they're going to accept the old model of pedagogy. They're, they'll try and change it in every way that we that they can. I really sense this too, just the excitement uh, amongst educators. That the Colson conference that I I gave the opening talk to that thing. I mean, it was palpable in the room. You could just sense that. We have an opportunity to really do this. The other thing is, all around the world, there's such great examples. I just tweeted that Magellanish thing a few days ago, and I got um, great um, stories from elsewhere. Someone came back from Finland saying, yeah, we've got a whole bunch of that stuff going on here as well. Don, Scott asks, uh, what about claims that this generation doesn't read as deeply as previous generations? 
and, and I'm interested in whether or not you'll tell the story of the Florida State University student. <laughs> well, that might be a good um, way to end because it really does get to the, the question. So this is last June. I was at Florida State, and they all the deans and the management had brought me in to spend um, a very long lunch with them around a big table just talking about the 21st century university. And um, I was delighted to do this. And um, I went through my views. You know, we need to change the model of pedagogy, the role of the, of the university, many big changes. And one of the reasons to do this is not just that we have a new uh, platform for learning in the world, but we have a new generation that learns differently. They're not good with the broadcast model. So one of the deans says to a youngster named Joe O'Shea, 22 years old, who they'd invited, a student, he's just graduating, graduated last year, says to him, Joe, what do you think? Joe says, well, this is resonating with me. I think we do learn differently. Um, I'll give you an example. I don't read books. Well, the look around the room was pretty awful, I've got to tell you. And he says, uh, I think I know what's in books, but I don't read books. The web is my source for information. And uh, I think I've got pretty good uh, uh, facilities for knowing what's true and what's not. And if I need to know what's in the book, Google Books will give me one chapter of any book, and I can figure out the book. I'm good at figuring out what's the good chapter. And if I actually have to read a physical book, I don't really read it like a book. I sort of go at it like a website. So the dean of the film school is sitting beside me and turns to Joe and he says, uh, he says to all of us, he says, well, I don't know if this is really exciting and interesting or if it means the end of civilization. So we had this amazing discussion, went on and on, questioning all kinds of fundamental things. And uh, I had a, a, a charter plane for the day. So I, and Joe was going back to Fort Lauderdale where I was going. So I, I, I said, hit your eye with me. I want to get to know you. So I interviewed him in the plane. And uh, I said, tell me about yourself. What kind of student are you? He says, I'm good. I said, how good? He says, I get A's. Kind of always did. Um, I said, what, do you do anything else besides being a good student? He says, yeah, I'm the president of the Students Council here at Florida State. I'm on, I don't know, a dozen university committees, and I chair a bunch of them. I got a $10 million budget that I have to manage. I said, wow, anything else? He says, well, the big thing over the last uh, few years is my girlfriend was from uh, New Orleans. And when Katrina hit, we went down there to see what we could do. And uh, there was no health care clinic in the devastated Ninth Ward. So I said, why not? I said, what do you mean you set up a health care? He says, well, you can do anything you want to do if you have the internet. You need an air conditioner, you can get an air conditioner. So he goes on. He was enormously knowledgeable. I asked him, tell me about your family's size. He says, well, both of my parents died in the last year. And it's tough. Uh, and I'm the eldest sibling. It's my job to keep the family together. And they don't live um, uh, in the same city as I do. I said, well, how do you do that? And he says, well, the best thing I've found is we go on World of Warcraft missions together. We're a team. I said, wow. I said, what are you doing next year? He says, oh, it's great. I'm, I'm going to, to London to study. I'm a graduate 
studies, and I'm going to have the British health care system. He knows all about it, and he says, uh, we just never had health care. We were poor as kids. We just never went to the doctor. I said, well, that's great. Well, what are you taking? He says, I'm doing a master's philosophy, a philosophy at Oxford. Oxford and Cambridge would be the two hardest places to get into in the world to do that. I said, well, Joe, congratulations. Um, have you got some financial aid? Because I knew he, you know, he's a poor kid. And he says, oh, yeah, it's great. I got a full scholarship. Covers everything. I said, that's great, Joe. Where'd you get that? He says, it's called a Rhodes Scholarship. The Rhodes Scholar from Florida State University doesn't read books. And I'll tell you, this kid is extraordinary. Ten, or ten years from now, we'll probably all know about him. But he's more typical of his generation than not, in the sense that he accesses information differently. And we fear what we don't understand. We think that, well, they're doing it all this weird way. Um, they, can't, they can't really be learning. And my case is, let's just be open to the idea that maybe they're learning differently, and the way that they learn is more appropriate to the way that information will be organized, distributed, and communicated in this century than the way that, that, that uh, it was in the past. Don, I think that's a great way to finish. Uh, uh, let's all give Don a hand. You can use the clapping icon in the lower participants box. Don, I think you're an optimist, and I really appreciate that about you and appreciate the, the messages. Uh, this session will be recorded and will be posted later tonight, so you're welcome to uh, listen to it again or let other people know about it. Coming up uh, on the Future of Education interview series, Susan Patrick, Michael Horn, Michael Wesch, Chris Deedy, John C.D. Brown, and David Thornburg. Uh, thanks to KnowledgeWorks. Thanks to Illuminate. Uh, thanks so much to you, Don, and thanks to everybody who participated tonight. Any final words, Don? Uh, no, just all. Um, let's uh, follow each other on Twitter. I'm DTAPSCOTT, and um, hope to see you on grownupdigital.com. Thanks, Don. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night. Don, I thought you did a great job. Um, I, in preparing, I read some of the Naked Corporation, just because it was of interest to me. And, and I, I actually really felt like uh, you did a really good job of magnifying the positives when the temptation might be to magnify the negatives. Well, it's, it's not just because I'm an optimistic person. I, I actually believe this, you know, I think that we can be very hopeful. So thanks for your time and for doing this. We'll see what kind of reaction you get out there. I'm sorry, say that again. Um, it'll be interesting to see how many people come and check it out offline. We typically get a, a few hundred who do. Yeah. Okay. Don, so thanks so thanks much. Really appreciate it.
Okay, we'll talk soon. Okay, okay. bye. Bye. Thanks everyone for joining. Uh, there are some of you still left. We do need you to actually exit the room for the recording the process. Don't mean to kick you out, but have to kick you out. Sorry about that. Have a great night.